0: Morning. Morning. I do want to make one uh, announcement before I begin, and that's that in your uh, bulletins it says that we're uh, lesson for tonight is why history matters, and that was the plan before I left. Uh, But since I've been back, there's been a change of plan. So tonight we're actually going to be uh, uh, we had a group that went to New Guinea, and so we'll be introducing a a new mission work that we're going to be supporting. Uh, you will get to see Cameron Olson's great uh, camera work and Aiden's wonderful interviewing skills in that video. And so if you'd like to, to be here and be a part of that. And then the following Sunday, uh, following non-small group Sunday, uh, the group will be sharing some of the reflections of the trip to New Guinea. And so in one month, we'll be right back on track um, with what's uh, scheduled in the bulletin. But if you'd like to come tonight and uh, learn a little bit more about a new mission work that we're supporting, uh, I'd like to encourage you to, to do that. Over the next few sermons, we're going to explore some specific elements of worship. And so this morning, I want to take one final bird's eye view as we look generally at worship and specifically what God is doing here in the midst and what our calling in worship is all about. And so we're going to look at three phases of worship. Um, These phases are not distinct from each other and they don't always go sequentially. They get bundled up at times, but I want us to look at these three phases. The first is that in worship we remember the past. I think that we're living in a time when, as a culture, we are noticing a shift in how people view the past. It seems like that there was a time in America that the common philosophical view was shared by Simba from The Lion King, who says, the past is in the past. But I think increasingly, people are beginning to realize the importance of what's happened in the past. In fact, in the time, New York Times, they recently called America a genealogy-crazed nation. Between 2009 and 2012, the number of people who signed up for the website Ancestry.com more than doubled, with at that point more than 14 million users. Bloomberg Business Report says that genealogy is the second most searched term on the internet. Trust me, you don't want to know what the first most searched term is. But genealogy, our history, our past is becoming more important to us. As a people, we're more mobile. We're, we're less connected with where we've come from. And so people are interested in knowing their history, where their roots are and where they belong. But for Christians, our history has always been our future as well. For us as Christians, when we look back to what has happened on the cross that dictates and determines everything going forward for us. So we are a people who both remember and who prioritize the past. One man said of remembrance that it is the central theme of biblical worship. See, in worship, what we are doing is we are remembering and reminding ourselves of what God has done in Christ and through His Spirit. We remember God's mighty acts, We remember the cross and the resurrection. We remember the ascension of Jesus. We remember his covenant and we remember the requirements of his covenant. And so in worship, we have these parts of our worship that explicitly or directly and clearly call for remembrance. Probably know what aspect that is at the table where Jesus said twice around the table, do this in remembrance of me. And then there's all these other aspects of what we do where remembrance is implicit, though not directly called for, it is called for or implied plainly through what is taught and expressed. Look, for example, at the very thing we're doing now, the preaching act. If preaching didn't involve anything from the past, it wouldn't be preaching. Because the thing that happens in preaching is a testimony of what God has already done and what God has accomplished. If, in fact, you were to take the first five sermons in Acts, you would find that they are very historically based. They are calling people to remember a very specific event, that event being Jesus himself, his crucifixion, and his ascension. While I can't read all of those sermons, here's just but a section of them, Acts 2.24. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Or Acts three eighteen and 19. In this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer, repent, therefore, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Or Acts four ten. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man standing before you is in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. Or Acts 5:50 or 30 through 31. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his right hand as leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. See, preaching is to remind us about what God has already done in Christ and through his Spirit. See, what we are celebrating here is something that has happened in the past that has bearing both on the present and a bearing on all of our futures. And yes, of course, there are times where remembrance is more explicitly mentioned. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and following say, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is of the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what does it mean for us to remember? For some of us, we think of remember just merely as mental recognition, which it involves that, but it's something so much more. Consider what Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8. He says, "Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David, that is my gospel." See, Paul has been calling Timothy to persevere in a time of suffering, and then he calls for him to remember Jesus. So is the resurrection of Jesus the kind of thing that Timothy might forget like a birthday? That if Timothy just put this in his calendar or in his favorite task app, he would never again need to be reminded about Jesus Christ. See, what Paul is calling Timothy to is something more than just mental recognition. It's not as if he's forgotten this. He's calling him to something more. Look at another example, Ephesians 2.12, where Paul says, Remember that you are at one time without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And once again, is it just possible they just forgot that they were Gentiles by birth? Now, what Paul is calling for is to bring the past into the present so that we once again will re-experience the past as if it were happening now. In the gospel, the past is never to remain in the past, but is to be brought forward to be functioning in the present of our lives. To have meaning and to have significance. So to remember, one could say, is to make it present, making it alive or making it real. We are bringing from the past and we are reenacting that very past in our present. I mean, even consider the Lord's table as we celebrate. It is not just merely re-remembering something, it is in fact reenacting something. We are just as Jesus did with those disciples. We are gathering around a table, and we are participating in something just as they participated in it. And we once again re-experience God's faithfulness. And so, worship is a part of remembering the past, but worship also will anticipate the future. It will look forward to what God will do in the future. Second Corinthians chapter one verses twenty through twenty-two. Paul says, For him, speaking of Jesus Christ, every one of God's promises is a yes. For this reason, it is through him that we say the amen to the glory of God. But it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us by putting his seal on us and giving us his spirit in our hearts as the first installment. See, it is God's past faithfulness that serves as a guarantee as God's future promises. Everything in Jesus Christ is a yes. As my dad would always say, you can take that to the bank. Something that you know for certainty. In worship, we remind ourselves of what the future has in store, of what God will do, and of how God will change this earth and will transform all people in the future. Have you ever watched that movie about the future, Back to the Future? Not one, not three, but in two, Biff Tannen goes into the future, and he steals a sports almanac. And he takes it back into the past, and he uses it for betting, and he wins all of this money because the peace of the future is brought into the present, and everything changes from there on out. And that is what worship is to be for us as Christians. We take something that belongs in the future, and we bring it into the very present. In fact, look at how Paul talks about the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 1.22. It is a first installment. What a first installment is, proof of something that exists in the future comes into the present. I have more money where this comes from. The Spirit actually belongs to the future reality, is brought into the present to bring about God's will on earth, just as it is in heaven. See, in worship it is not unusual for us to show up and to feel beat up, to feel betrayed, or to feel burdened. We live in a world that's full of hatred and bitterness and discord and an awful lot of ugliness. And sometimes we walk in here thinking that the world is winning. And worship reminds us of God's future victory, of God's future plans, and of how all of this will turn out. Because sometimes we need to be reminded because sometimes we begin to lose hope. We begin to lose faith. I have a friend who when she would read a book she would always read the last three or four pages first. Apparently she had a bad experience once where she read an entire book didn't like the ending and say I just wasted a week of my life never again. I will always read the last pages first. Worship is the act of reading the last pages first where we remind ourselves of how all of this is going to turn out of where all of these things are going and that brings into our present reality the hope that is necessary to continue to live faithfully to this God who has called us. Viktor Frankl was a, in a Nazi concentration camp, and he wrote that the prisoner who had lost faith in the future was doomed. He told the story about a fellow prisoner who had this hope-filled dream that they would be set free, that they would be let go, that they would be emancipated from all of this suffering. And Frankl said, well, when will this happen? And the person said, on the 30th of March. And then Frankel says that he died on the 31st of March because he died because he lost hope. The date had passed. See, we need hope for us to continue to move into a future reality. But unlike this individual, our future reality will not disappoint. So in worship, we remind ourselves what the world really looks like from God's vantage point, And we remind ourselves of the hope that we have. One of the ways we do this is through song. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 through 20 says, As you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Part of the function of our song service is to offer a gift to each other. We sing among ourselves or to each other. So worship is God-oriented, but is also oriented to each other. And do you ever receive the encouragement from psalms? Did you know in our songbooks there is a section called Christian Assurance? And in these 80-plus songs, we are reminding ourselves of what we can anticipate in the future. Here's a section of a song, song number 464. Because he lives, the chorus says, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. My life is worth the living just because he lives. Or song number 480, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. See, these songs are a reminder of the hope that we have and of the direction that all things in world history are moving. And it is that reminder that will stay with us for a long time. I remember the last time I visited with my Grandpa Whitfield. He was 94 at the time and didn't really remember an awful lot. I was pretty sure he had no idea who I was. Most of the time he didn't know who his own daughter was. And as we got ready to leave, my mom suggested that we sing the song Amazing Grace. And so we sang, and do you know what Grandpa did when we sang that song? His lips moved, and he sang it with us. See, we remember, because those songs are put so deep within us, and we anticipate a great and a wonderful future. See, even it is around the table that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty twenty six 26, that whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Worship we're remembering the past but we're also saying this is what's coming in the future. Jesus Christ is coming again. Jesus Christ will return once again and in the partaking of the table we are reaffirming our belief in what God will do in the future. And so it is in worship that the past and the present are the past and the future are experienced in the present. See, I think we probably all know people whose lives are stuck in the past. You know, the football star who can't stop talking about that touchdown pass in the championship game. Or that mother who talks about what it was like before the kids grew up and how wonderful life was then. The betrayed spouse drowning in relational regret. The retired business owner who keeps talking about all those great business adventures he had. But in the same way, there is a temptation for worship to be done in the past tense alone. That for some of us, worship is like visiting a museum of the glory days of when God actually used to do something. We talk about everything that God did and God said and God told, but we don't think that any of those things have moved into the present. See, somehow the past works of God cannot be locked away into a museum that we celebrate what God has done without the recognition that God is continuing to work. But we also, on the other hand, probably all know some people who spend all of their lives waiting for something to happen. So future-oriented that they won't live in the present. And you say, once I find that special friend, once I get that job, once I finish school, once I retire, and everything is just simply about the future, and for some, worship is the same. It is so future-oriented It's like visiting a prototype research and development building where they can see all the things that are coming down the road. The robot that can change diapers and cook dinner. And then you go back into this life and you say, well, I'm just even more miserable knowing all the great and wonderful things that are coming that I don't experience today. And is worship supposed to be that? A a, a reminder of what's going to come in the sweet by and by, and then we reserve all of our joy and celebration for the future. One day I'll rejoice, but just not today because it's not here yet. See, in worship we remember the past to bring it forward into the present, and we remember the future to bring it back into the present day. See, at the table is one of these places where we experience past and present and future. One day we will be united with people of every tongue and language and tribe all around the world sitting at the banquet table of God. And that's something we can anticipate. But it's also something we participate in every Sunday as we collectively come around the table. And so we begin to take a piece of what's coming, though not fully revealed and not fully in its fullest sense, but in in a small way we begin already to participate in that feast and in that banquet. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And as we share, we are remembering this long heritage that has come. These generations of people who have shared around the table. And so the past and the work of Jesus Christ is brought into the present. See, worship has this past element and this future element to bring it all into the present day. But before I move to my concluding segment, I want to anticipate an objection. Worship may be intended to be all these things, but sometimes can't worship just be far less majestic than I just described? See, I don't know what Craig's talking about, but clearly he doesn't come to church here. See, sometimes we take these majestic things of God and we live in this mundane world and we don't know what to do because sometimes things just don't seem as majestic as they are portrayed to be. Have you ever spent an entire worship service just thinking about your failing business? Have you ever spent all of your energy in worship just doing your best to stay awake? And now here we're talking about the grandeur of the past and the future and the present all being brought together. Craig, what you're talking about is just pie in the sky. And on the one hand, on the one hand, it's true. On the one hand, God tends to underperform in all of his majesty. Comes to the world and he shows up in a manger. And he leaves the world from a cross. And isn't there just something much more majestic that God can do than the mundane, everyday sort of thing? But maybe this story will illustrate. There's a man named Thomas and he has vivid memories of growing up in a church in rural Georgia. And in that church he says he remembers how he encountered God. He remembers how he was formed through worshipping with that body of believers. He remembers times when God's powerful presence could be sensed amongst them. He remembers majestic worship. But Thomas also remembers the dog. On those hot summer days in Georgia, they would open the doors and a stray dog would frequently come to church. And he would poke and he would prod his way around from member to member and person to person. And Thomas says... The joke was that sometimes the dog had better attendance than most of the deacons. And he remembers that. So some Sundays he remembers the majesty of God and other Sundays he just remembers the dog. See, worship is this thing that is built up over time. Where God is changing us. Where God is about doing the work that he is doing, perhaps not even in as majestic of a way as we can understand. Sometimes we glimpse the majesty of it. And sometimes it feels just like another Monday, mundane day. But yet, through the long period, God is present. And God is doing something wonderful and powerful and majestic. See, as we engage in corporate worship, it should function like a compass that reorients our daily lives. It changes our private worship. I remember being in the 5th or 6th grade, and I'm pretty sure this would be illegal now, but I got dropped off with a group of my classmates in a forest. And I was given a compass, and I was given a destination. We'll see you there in two hours. And off we went. And as we were going along the way, we would frequently look back at that compass to make sure we were heading in the right direction. See, worship serves like a compass for us that says, How am I living in light of what God has done in the past? And how am I living in light of where all of this is going to end up? See, worship is not just something we do, but it's something that God is doing in us and through us and with us. You've probably heard the story of the the ship that was out going through the ocean, and the ship receives a message from what it believes to be another boat that says, If you keep your present course, we will collide. I advise you change course six degrees. Well, that boat that received the message sent the message back saying, I am a battleship. I advise you change course six degrees. Of course, the message comes back and says, well, I am a lighthouse. I advise you change course six degrees. See, in worship, what is happening sometimes is there is a tension between our direction of what we believe is important and what we believe is significant and what we believe matters. And in worship, God will reorient those things and say, you might need to change your direction six degrees. Oh, and we won't always at first just accept God's instruction, will we? We'll say, I advise you change course six degrees. But it is when we come and we hear the story of what God has done, when we come to believe in the future that he's bringing about, that we can recognize sometimes we've got the wrong compass. It won't even get us in the direction we need to go. See, what happens when we find out we are moving in the wrong direction, confronted by the great work of God through history, sometimes our best and only response is what what is instruction in Acts 3.19, Repent, therefore and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Repentance is a turning course. See, one of the functions of worship is to say, if we are moving contrary to where God wants us to move, we need to reorient. We need to change direction. Or maybe you're already on course. Your compass is the right compass, but you realize you need to realign your life. John writes that if we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, what we have done this morning is we have encountered a God who has been at work since the beginning of history, even before the beginning of time. And he has a plan that spans into the future. And he's calling for each of us to align with him, to make his plan our plan. His will, our will. His desire, our desire. And if you in the process of being in the presence of God has recognized your life is not oriented where it needs to be, this is a chance and an opportunity to realign yourself, to repent. Or perhaps you've been walking that road and you're recognizing, I just need to redirect myself in the line that God is calling. Uh, After we sing a song, there's going to be some folks in the back. I'll be back there. Some of the elders will be there. We're happy to pray with you. We're happy to talk about what the next step looks like in terms of repentance and turning around and, and, and how the waters of baptism play a significant role in that process. But we come into the presence of God, and we never leave changed. You might not notice today that he's changed you, but one point you realize God has been at work in you. And I pray that this very moment you've realized in the midst of that which is mundane and that which is majestic, God has powerfully been at work. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There'll be some folks in the back if you want to come back while we stand, while we sing.